Welcome, everybody. So good to see you. <laughs> Love the chatter. We want to be a church with chatter, so it's all good. Welcome. It's good to see everybody. Uh, it's on this Sunday, beautiful day, and uh, kind of our last, I think, stint of summer weather. So it's so good to see you guys, and hopefully you've had a great weekend so far. We had an amazing day yesterday um, serving as a community. So one of the things we wanted to do is every season not only have a spiritual discipline, but also have a teaching series and a community outreach that we're partnering together with. And so yesterday, a group of us were at Urban Roots London, which is an urban farm here in town. And it was just a blast serving together and uh, working together, uh, some teamwork. You can see some photos here of some wonderful workers just working away. And we had a great time. Uh, man, it really opened up my imagination to what could be for the future of our local outreaches where we can actually serve together as families. There's something beautiful about just coming together as a community. So what's really amazing is the work that we did yesterday with about a dozen of us, the work that we did yesterday in two hours saved the farm manager there a week of work. How cool is that? So like this is primarily a place that is volunteer only and they have a farm manager who comes in I think at part time and we were able to like do this. We were moving some corn and some stuff and uh, some compost and it was just a great time. So thanks to those of you guys that served and are a part of that and we're just going to be looking now. I know you're going to like cringe at this. Well, some of you won't, but we're going to be looking forward to Christmas and some of the Christmas outreach that we're going to do. Yeah, don't worry. It's coming. It's coming quicker than you know. And so we'll keep you up to date with some of the things that we'd love to do. But well done, guys that are serving and hopefully you can jump in on the next one with us. Now, we are in a series walking through what we believe are some of the most important questions facing our moments as Christians in a pretty progressive city. And it's called From Redemption to Recycling. We're just looking at things that a lot of people have asked questions about over the last couple of years, and we've gotten the ball rolling the last couple weeks. If you missed last week, we did a two-part thing on hell and judgment. We did a teaching last Sunday about that, and then a, we did a midweek podcast on the different views of the different Christian views of hell and heard some, I think, pretty good feedback as we wrestle through this uh, together. Hell isn't probably the most fun thing to talk about, but I think the idea of hell being exile has really, again, got people's imaginations going of what God is going to do. Now, I had promised, we had promised, that this morning we were going to talk about creation evolution and science, and we've switched it up a little bit. Um, I apologize, but um, we're going to do this talk on the creation account specifically in two weeks from today, October the 6th. We're going to look and hopefully come around some appropriate ways to read the ancient Hebrew uh, scriptures and especially the creation account. So um, I hope we can come back in a couple weeks and we'll engage that. The reason why we switched it up is today is actually Freedom Sunday uh, through an organization called International Justi Justice Mission. And they do a great work at alleviating and working to end modern-day violence and slavery, especially cybersex slavery, which is massive right now, especially in the Western world. And they do an incredible job. And so with that, we had a talk, a part of from, from Redemption to Recycling, we had a talk planned around social justice, 
because I don't know if you know this, there are actually some Christians against social justice. We'll get there in a few minutes, which is, by the way, I'm, I'm already, dis, already spilling the beans. Um, and so this was actually planned for November, but I thought what will tie in nicely with Freedom Sunday and some of the things that we want to do um, that we'll talk about this this morning. Is that okay? Give you a moment if you want to get up and leave. It's all good. You won't hurt. Well, you may hurt my feelings. That would really hurt my feelings if you got up and left. But um, we'll, do, uh, we'll do the creation evolution talk in a couple weeks. With that said, if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Matthew 25 or fire your phone on, we are going to be in Matthew 25 for a little bit this morning. Before we get there, the Old Testament law. Is it out there? You know, sometimes as progressives, uh, prog progressives will look at the uh, Old Testament as something kind of outdated, archaic, kind of way, way out there. Listen to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10 says this. Verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for, for your own good. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Verse 19, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. This is the Bible. This is that old archaic, what a lot of people think is that old archaic part where it kind of feels at times like God is crazy giving all these laws. And this begins a long history of how God actually looked to care for the orphan, the widow, and what we know as the foreigner or illegal immigrant. The scriptures use the word foreigner in most of our English translations. The point is, is that those who were without people that would defend them in this culture, ancient culture, had a God that would advocate for them. The widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And so much so that God actually calls now his people, this called out people that he's called under his name, to actually be these people that would advocate for the very same thing. The orphan, the widow, and the foreigner with their resources and their entire lives. Can I just say this, brothers and sisters? As much as our current political moment wants to make it so, this should not be controversial. Come on, somebody. Can you, I know you're a quiet bunch. Can somebody say amen? This, this right here, no matter where you land on the political spectrum, and I know we're Canadians, we have, we're infiltrated with all sorts of information from our U.S. friends, which is fine, but this right here should not be controversial. Deuteronomy 14, let's keep going. At the end of every three years, God says, bring all the tithes. So Israel was committing to tithe their income, which is more of like giving your stuff in that culture. Um, to the temple, to the work of the priests and the Levites. And when they would give this tithe, on the, every three years, on the year's produce, and the stores in your towns, put it to the stores in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So the picture 
is to bring this every three years and that the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, and what we know as refugees in this particular context, would be cared for. Deuteronomy 24, keep going. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why I command you to do this. Interesting God's caveat with this. God says to the people, do you remember... Israel, when you were in slavery for 400 freaking years without a way out, and now that you're these free people and have come under my law, just remember the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan because you were once in slavery. You were once the oppressed, and now you're these people that out of the flow of your lives and community, take care of them. Verse 19, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, I know all of you, I know you're overlooking your sheaves. I know it's crazy. Do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands when you beat the olives from your trees. Again, I know you guys on the weekend beating the olives on your trees. Um, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When the grape, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the, can we just say it? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you as a people to do this. Brothers and sisters, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Over and over, the call is to, for Israel and this, and this community to be these people for, advocates for the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. Micah picks up on this. A very well-known verse to many of us, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, says this, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you as a community? One, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So, the Old Testament is overflowing. It is dripping. If you just read it, even in the law, which I know for us kind of seems far out there, like don't boil a goat in your mother's milk does, isn't always applicable at times. <laughs> anybody, anybody with me? Unless uh, maybe you are doing that, you should stop. But um, I know sometimes it seems so far off and a little distant, but it's interesting that the Old Testament is overflowing with one, commands concerning the poor, two, do not miss it, Blessing on those who serve the poor. Blessing is actually in one way tied to those who would be for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And three, consequences over and over to Israel for not serving the poor. This was actually something that was tied at times to them being sent into exile. Not the best like, hey, you're going to have a best life message, I know but something that we need to think through as people now a couple of thousand years later, or even more than a couple of thousand years later. So then you get to Jesus. You get to the book of Luke, which is all about actually care for the poor. The running theme is the work of the Spirit in Luke and the poor. This crazy, radical message that God is going to pour his Spirit out on the poor would have just been like mind-rattling for the first century audience. Then you get to Jesus in Matthew 25. He says this, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with them, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, this is about judgment. Jesus says, verse 34, or uh, Matthew says, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come for you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, where, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Verse 38, when did, you, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't seem to disconnect a life in the kingdom from serving the least of these. And it's interesting that actually this is about judgment as Jesus kind of gives a picture and almost tells a parable in a sense of the sheep and the goats. It's interesting, like Jesus didn't say, hey, make sure you're saved by grace through faith, which is important. Don't get me wrong. It's the central part of it. But it's interesting that life eternal was very much connected to how people treated those on the margins. And Jesus actually says, listen, what you do with these folk, when you do it, you do it to me. Over and over in our scriptures, we have this call to care for the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and those on the margins. Now, social justice. Interesting conversation, because it is true, when we bring up the word social justice, there are all sorts of opinions around, around this, and especially cultural opinions. But what I wanna do for the next few moments is look at biblical justice. What does the Bible say? I think that's the best place, obviously, to start. What does the Bible say about justice? It's interesting, there's two particular Old Testament words that are used in the Old Testament um, uh, for justice and righteousness. And these words are used over and over, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the word mishpah and tzedakah. Mishpah and tzedakah. They're used a ton on their own, but there are also these twin words that the Hebrew scriptures uses over and over. Now, as I was preparing to kind of break, are you okay this morning? Hanging in there? You're quiet as always. It's all good. You can smile. You can laugh. We're good. Michigan got beat down yesterday, so there's really nothing in life really more than Jesus because Michigan is just terrible, and it's okay. Um, that was, yeah, Jesus is always, even when they're playing well, Jesus is the, the, the best. Um, so as I was looking at kind of breaking these words down for us as a community, I came across a gal her name is, I want to get it right, her name is Jessica Nicholas, who has done some, I just stumbled across it this week on these two particular words. She wrote a book called God Loves Justice, a user-friendly guide to biblical justice and righteousness. And listen, I could probably wax eloquent a bit and kind of break this down for her, but as I came across her stuff, she, it's weird, I've never played, I rarely ever play a YouTube video for you, but she does such a brilliant job at breaking down this this mishpah, uh, the idea of these words mishpah and tzedakah, and even how they work together, that I thought, even though it's not like the highest quality video, I thought I'd give her the floor for a couple minutes. One, I think she's done a fantastic job at breaking it down. And two, I just love the fact that there's more and more female theologians rising to the top. And I just want to give her the floor. Is that okay? So she's going to talk about these two particular words over the next couple minutes that I think will help bend our minds as to what 
biblical justices and what this means for us. And then I'm going to come up at the end and we'll land the plane for a couple of minutes on what it means for us. Make sense? Watch the screen. Let's talk about the justice that God says that he loves, Mishpat. So I want to read three verses that kind of give us a picture of the relationship between God and Mishpat. So Deuteronomy 32.4, all his ways are Mishpat, justice. Psalms 37.28, for the Lord loves Mishpat, justice. Psalms 9.7, he has established his throne for Mishpat, justice. So everything God does is justice. All of his ways are Mishpat. God's heart is in tune and excited about Mishpat justice. It's something that he loves. The way that he reigns, his authority, it's centered on justice, mishpat. So this is an exciting thing for us to see and understand God. Um, so the Hebrew word mishpat is used around 400 times. When it's translated into English, it's translated as a whole range of words. It's translated as plan, as verdict, as judgment, as justice, as a whole range of words. So what does mishpat mean? Um, the most important starting place for understanding justice or mishpat is the character and nature of God. So God is a God of mishpat. It says in three places that God is a God of justice. So that means that justice, it starts in the very character and nature and value system of God. So when he does justice or when we do justice, it's not just following rules. It's literally reflecting the character and nature of God into the world. Um, and so what does mishpat mean? One meaning, first meaning we'll go over is that Mishpat is right order. And I know it may not sound that exciting, but stick with me. So the Bible scholar, Dr. Bruce Waltke, sums it up this way. He says that Mishpat is to establish a heavenly norm or pattern on earth. So way back in my old Trinity days, I studied science. And in science, you look at the order that God puts into the universe, the order in our bodies, the order in ecosystems, the order in planets. And it's an order that creates and sustains life. When order, something's out of order, when something's going wrong with our bodies, when something's going wrong in ecosystems, death, destruction, disease take hold. So right order is a good thing. Um, so one way Mishpat can be understood as expressing and um, sustaining God's intended order for creation, which is kind of a fun, exciting thing. Um, and his order is awesome. His order creates and sustains life. So that's the first meaning of Mishpat. Other meaning... So as an illustration of that, I want to look at three verses. There's three places in the Old Testament where it talks about a, um, some person being given a plan, being given a mishpat to create a physical space for God's presence to dwell. So in three places, the tabernacle of Moses, um, Solomon's temple, and a temple prophesied in Ezekiel, in each of those cases, it said that somebody was given a mishpat, they were given a plan to create this physical space. Now, does that mean, I think if we have great architecture, like God's presence comes more, comes better? No, I don't think that. But I think it's a really great illustration of how awesome order and mishpat can be. Um, and that God can help us have plans and give ideas for creating mishpat. Other meaning, so mishpat can mean individual rights and legal governing. Um, which is easy for us Western-minded Christians to understand because justice is usually like a legal flavor in English. Um, so mishpat can be translated as all sorts of legal words like case, verdict, judgment, justice. Um, but it's important to understand even when justice is legal, even when it's expressed in legal terms, it still is an expression of a value for relationships. Um, the foundation of justice is right relationships. So whether it's relationship in a nation, whether it's relationship between your neighbor, um, wherever it is, foundation of, of mishpat, even in legal order, is still, um, is still a value for relationships. And it's important to understand too, so in the time the, New Te the Old Testament was written, nations, even when they had a law, 
their government didn't revolve around the law like our modern governments do. Their law still revolved around their king, around a person. And in Israel, that king or that person was God himself, which means that the laws and the order was still a reflection of God himself. So mishpat, even when it was um, expressed in something static like a law, it still was dynamic and it still caused change and was transformational because it came from God himself. Last definition we'll go over is that um, mishpat can mean a custom, a manner, or a routine. So there were other lowercase g gods around and they also had their own mishpat. They had their own customs, their own manners, their own routines that their people followed. But God is... Um, uppercase God. He is the one that we follow. And so our mishpat comes from and flows from him. So we mirror his customs, his manners, his routines into the world. Um, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into one of the, what, what I think is really hard for us Western-minded Christians to understand. And that's that mishpat, justice and judgment, can actually, it, um, it parallels deliverance, salvation, and victory. I know. Doesn't sound like in our world that those things connect, but they do. Um, so one illustration for this, if I were to tell you that Judgment Day is coming, I think it would probably inspire something like fear and panic into most people. Um, but pretend for a second that you were stuck in a jail cell somewhere, you were accused of a crime that you didn't commit, and you knew that the next day, your Judgment Day, you were gonna go before a really awesome judge and you had the world's best lawyer and there was tons of evidence to pr prove your innocence. If that were the case, your judgment day would be so exciting because you would know that your judgment day would mean liberation from this injustice that you were experiencing. So that's why judgment can be something exciting. It means liberation from the injustice you've been experiencing. Um, so um, I want to go into a little bit more the um, just this definition and how it parallels deliverance, salvation, and victory. And I want to read some quotes, some commentary by a Jewish scholar, um, Eliezer Berkowitz. I think he puts really great language to this sal saving and deliverance element to judgment, justice, and mishpat. So I want to read two quotes from him. So. The purpose of judgment is to save the innocent from injustice. The idea is so deeply anchored in biblical thought that to judge becomes the equivalent of to save. Of the terrible anger of God, the psalmist said, you caused the sentence to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God rose to judgment to save the humble of the earth, God judges in order to save. If salvation is to go forth, judgment is to be instituted. And indeed, from numerous passages in the Bible, the idea that the function of, of the judge is to save. The commandment to judge is the responsibility to deliver. So judgment, it means that deliverance, salvation, restoration is happening, that wrongs are being made right, that it is something that we should be happy and excited about. Um, and I also love um, Berkowitz's commentary on what mishpat means. So he says, Mishpat is done, not that justice will prevail, but that life will prevail. Thus, while Mishpat may be grim, it is always an act of saving and deliverance. It's a principle of preservation, the restoration of a disturbed balance, which, in, which is needed because life has become unbalanced. So justice doesn't just help us distinguish between right and wrong. It takes revolutionary action when something is wrong to make it right. And in that process, punishment might be needed. Someone might need to be punished for what they did wrong, but it's not, it's not the focus of it. The focus of Mishpat is on restoration. The focus is on making wrongs right. It's not, fo it's not focused on making sure that all the people who did something wrong are properly punished. 
It might be needed, but it's not the focus. Later, we're going to go over an example of doing mishpat that doesn't actually include punishment. It includes restoration of relationship. So we talked about justice, and we talked about righteousness. Now we're going to talk about justice and righteousness. So it's a little bit nerdy, but stick with me. You'll feel super smart at the end. So sometimes in Hebrew, when two words are joined together in a phrase with and, or, if they appear in parallel verses, it means something different as a phrase than when those words appear separately. So for example, like in English, we have assault and battery or fire and brimstone, two great phrases. They, those words mean something different when they're in a phrase than when they're individually, in, used individually. So why do we care about this? Um, well, in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness as a phrase shows up pretty often. It shows up over 80 times. And God in Psalms 33.5 says that he loves justice and righteousness, which means he already said he loves this concept of justice. He loves this concept of righteousness. He also loves it when this, this idea of when they're joined together. So when justice and righteousness show up together. So what does it mean? Well, um, some scholars actually say that justice and righteousness means social justice. I think sometimes, yes, justice and righteousness can mean social justice. Problem is, is that justice and righteousness in the Old Testament is a super important concept. It's like tied to God himself. It's like really important. And in our culture, social justice can mean a million different things. If you ask 20 people, you'll probably get 20 different answers for what social justice is. Some of those 20 answers, I think can mean social or justice and righteousness. Some of them, not so much. Even the dictionary definition for social justice, I don't think is a very complete one. So I have a hard time attaching this like super God-centered, important idea of justice and righteousness with an English term, social justice, that doesn't have one meaning and it seems to be changing every 10 seconds. So let's look at the biblical definition of justice and righteousness. Some of it will probably fit social justice, some of it won't. I don't actually like arguing about it. So let's study the Bible. So what does justice and righteousness mean? So to understand the meaning, we really have to go back to creation. So when God created the world, he called each part of it good. And he designed the world so that everybody and everything can enjoy the goodness that God put into his creation. So justice and righteousness means honoring and expressing God's intended order for creation. So it means doing things that lead to wholeness and restoration and prosperity. Um, so I know that that sounds very broad. I think an easier way to understand justice and righteousness is when you look at how it's applied in Israel. We don't really have um, time to go over all of it, but I do want to go over some like bigger picture, broad themes of what justice and righteousness were. How do we understand them in the Bible? What were they foundational to? So I want to start off with there's three areas that are three things that it says that justice and righteousness are foundational to. So they're foundational to God's reign, God's chosen people, and Jesus's kingdom and reign. So there are like the foundation of so many things. It, twice in Psalms, it says that um, justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. That means everything that God does is from a place of justice and righteousness. That means every action that he takes, every part of his character, it's colored with justice and righteousness. My problem with a lot of like justice and righteousness or like social justice projects um, is that we try to like take social justice or justice and righteousness and we try to take it out and we try to put it into like one category it's in like one ministry it's in like one thing that we do but really it's so much more holistic than that it should be part of everything that we do 
everything that we do is from a place of justice and righteousness. The kingdom that we now live in is foundation. The foundation of it is justice and righteousness. So if we try to take it out of all of these other parts of society or all of these other activities, we're really missing out. So if we truly want to reflect what God is like in the world, everything that we do should be from a place of justice and righteousness and should be colored with justice and righteousness. Um, so let's look at some other places that we see justice and righteousness. So justice and righteousness, they are things that God loves. They're things that God delights in. They're things he expects his nation to do. They're things he expected his leaders to do. They are things that Jesus is said to do in the prophetic pictures that were given in the Old Testament. Um, and it's said to be permanent when the Holy Spirit comes. So justice and righteousness, they're not small like side activities. I thought that's what I would find when I looked at the Bible was that they were like small side activities. And I can understand how to make like one ministry or something reflect justice and righteousness, but really it's not a side activity. It is so important to understanding leadership, to understanding Jesus, to understanding what a Holy Spirit-filled life looks like, to understand all of these things. Justice and righteousness are foundational to all of it. So I want to finish out with just a picture of what loving justice and righteousness looks like based on what we see in the Bible. So what does loving justice and righteousness look like? If you would have asked me 10 years ago, what I thought it looked like. It would probably look like God loving rules and loving punishment and loving throwing lightning bolts on people who were extra special, particularly sinful. That was the picture. But really, the biblical picture is so much better than that. And it's one that we should be so excited to love, to embrace, to follow. Um, so this is the picture. When God says that he loves justice and righteousness, he's saying that he loves relationship. God loves when we are completely loyal to him. God loves freeing the oppressed from the oppressor. God loves when we pattern our lives after his life-giving order. God loves deliverance, salvation, and victory. God loves creating a heavenly norm on earth. God loves pe when people are given their rights. God loves restoring what's been lost, broken, or stolen. God loves environments where everyone can live in their fullness. Fullness. God loves good, unselfish governance. God loves laws that reflect the value and dignity of the poor. God loves re rescuing the poor and defenseless. This is a picture of what God looks like when he loves justice and righteousness. This should be something that we should get excited, that we get to reflect into the world. These are the kinds of actions we get to take. This is the kind of heart that we get to have, that we love relationships and we love when the oppressed go free. We love it when the poor are given their rights. This is the kind of life that we get to live. So my prayer for you walking away from this is that you would start to change the picture that you have of God loving justice and righteousness, that you would love the things that he loves, that you would get so excited about reflecting that into the world, that you would get excited and digging deep into the Bible and learning about what this looks like. So good. So good. So it's not a side project, right? It feels like when you peer, peer from Genesis, this isn't even in the notes, so I gotta be careful, but even when you look from Genesis to all the way to Revelation, you begin to see that this is like life in God, that righteousness and justice is this thing that we join in God with. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? Does that bring you joy? Like when I saw that, I thought, oh, like instead of dividing over these, some of these discussions, Let's press into what the Bible actually means and what it says for God's people. So then you get to the New Testament, and oftentimes when you read, like, say, in the NIV or the ESV, it uses this word uh, righteousness, 
But probably the, the better word there is a combination. The Greek word for righteousness in our New Testament is better translated the combination of those two Hebrew words, uh, mishpat and tzedakah. And it's interesting that probably the better way of thinking when you read righteousness in your Bibles is thinking justice, thinking of God setting the world to rights, making, ultimately it means God making things just, right, right living. So injustice deforms and hurts and breaks, but justice restores. And this is the kind of life that we're called into when we talk about these things. You with me? You hanging in there? Now, can I just say, um, when, the, when we talk about the social justice kind of conversation, there's part of me, I'm just going to be honest, where I at times feel very homeless in the discussion. I don't know if you're like this, like somebody's trying to follow Jesus and you're like, you should be trying to follow Jesus, you're a pastor. I get it, right? But tr- trying to follow Jesus in a city with a young family super passionate about justice and righteousness, very increasingly becoming more and more passionate about work with the poor and the call for the church in this. And so I feel, and I don't want to use progressive conservative language because I do think it's divisive, but I feel like on the one side, you have a community of people that are somewhat skeptical of social justice, right? Um, Part of this comes actually from the Reformation. The Reformation was beautiful and necessary, but the cornerstone idea in the Reformation was that we're saved by grace through faith. And so the Reformers, to push back on Catholic views, were very, like this became central to them. By faith alone, sola fide. And while that's beautiful, I would say that a lot of times what happened in in that community, and it's now we see it, I think, all around us in the Western church, is that we become very skeptical of works. We become like, oh my goodness, because the the reformers, they push back on the Catholic guys that were saying, hey, you got to do this and that to get into purgatory and to heaven. And and the reformers came and said, no, we're saved by grace through faith, which is absolutely essential. But the problem is, is that we began and the church began to look at works as negative, which is a joke. Guys, That is just so funny to me that we can point to one verse, and yet it's interesting that when the Bible as a whole in the New Testament talks about faith, what does it follow up with almost all the time? Good works. Somehow we got afraid of good works because we're not saved by what we do. Well, I think we all kind of know that. But over the last little while, I think it's shaped us in a way for many reformed communities especially that works. we got to be skeptical of works. It's a bad thing. Like we have friends in the States, we know some people from some folk in the States, their church does an amazing job with Portland Rescue Mission and they feed the homeless and do all sorts of great projects and there's a Baptist pastor in the neighborhood where they do this work who I saw a video, a YouTube clip of him the other day saying that their, it was a few weeks ago actually, um, that their work is an abomination to the Lord, right? And I thought, there you go, you've got a guy who because we're saved by grace through faith has taken it to the 10th degree and looks at works as an abomination. And that's just crazy. That's, to me, that's very, very crazy. So you have on the one side, people that are skeptical of social justice and are primarily focused on saving souls. So much so that in 2018, a group of reformed churches, uh, reformed, I mean like theologically reformed churches and pastors, came up with a statement in many ways against social justice. Now it's masked a little bit in in Bible and stuff like that, but it's just interesting that 
I just don't feel comfortable in this camp. I don't feel like we, are you with me? Like that works should be a negative thing. You see throughout the scriptures, all over the pages of the scriptures that we're called to the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, and to the poor. So you have on the one side this idea of social justice and its skepticism. Now, here's what I, here's just in gift form, these are my emotions when I think of this and see this. Here's one of them. This would be one of them. Anybody with me? Yeah, okay. Little Stanley from the office. Nobody? Man, you guys. Or, and sometimes my emotions when I feel like we need to have a statement against social justice, I think this probably is another one too, right? So, and I know many of us, just talking, many of us, Many of us feel this, but I'll just say, I feel like the other side is no better. On the other side, it feels like there's a community that is working towards the kingdom of God without the king. We're in a moment right now where I don't feel comfortable in the other camp because I just think there's a lot of people working for the kingdom of God without any acknowledgement or sense uh, of the king. You know, there's a lot working towards restoration, doing good, but with little to no acknowledgement, one, of human sin and brokenness, which is how do we even do what we do without acknowledging human sin and brokenness, nor any acknowledgement that Jesus, that Jesus is the king that will one day bring complete restoration. You have one side, conservative, social justice is bad. I feel like you have the other side where it's kind of like we're trying to do all this stuff without any acknowledgement of the king. And my hope is that we find some middle ground in this conversation. That we would look to what the Bible says, and biblical justice is God partnering with humans to set the world to rights. With me? In everything we do, biblical justice, justice and righteousness, is God working with his people like he did from the very first day he called Abraham to be a great nation, to setting the world to rights. And so as I was pulling, you know, corn and weeds and stuff yesterday, I just got thinking, I will never disconnect, just, just me as an individual, I will never disconnect what I am doing right here from the rule and reign of God. That there's actually a big, bigger story that, let's be honest, a lot of progressives miss. We're trying to bring the kingdom here without any acknowledgement of the king. And I'm just telling you, that is not how this works. You with me? So even working yesterday, I just got thinking, it's got to be both of these things working together. An acknowledgement of Jesus as king and being the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. So my hope is that that would be the call for this community. And I'm just kind of feeling like it's a moment right now. Not that talk is bad, but I feel like we should be stepping into a moment where there's less talk and more action. You with me? somewhat tired of the conversation, I just want to do this. I just want to step into this. And this idea of social justice and, and care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, for the poor, I think we can talk about these things, but honestly, I just want to commit to being a church and a person that does it, that lives in the tension of Jesus as king and being the hands and feet of Jesus. So one of the things we wanted to do today is just lean in a little bit to Freedom Sunday. Today's Freedom Sunday, and uh, iJam does a great work. There's a guy actually a part of our church. He's on holidays right now, Cam. Cam. Many of you guys just know Cam Phillips works for iJam. He's actually one of the church coordinators and does a great job in, in, um, involving churches. And iJam does a phenomenal work at um, releasing many, many people from the sex trade. I'm going to just take a few minutes to watch the work of IJM and um, listen to some stories of how they're 
not only uh, alleviating violence, but uh, as well working in these uh, trades to set people free. So check out this video.